Dr. Hatgill, thank you for joining us this morning on Austin Hellenic Radio. As an educator for 35 years, you're currently a professor emeritus at the University of Texas of Austin. But in addition to your artistic and your educational endeavors, you also are very familiar with the history of the Greek community here in Austin, Texas, and have been heavily involved in the local Hellenic community as well. And I wanted to start out by just asking you about your background and a little bit about the background of the local Hellenic community in Austin, Texas as well. Thank you, Michael. We're going to talk today about the early part of my training here as an instructor and also a little history of Austin since I arrived in 1951. Uh, Let me state at the outset, if one is interested in a definitive study of the Greek presence in Austin, and especially in Texas, one can visit the permanent San Antonio Cultural Exhibition. It's an excellent photo display of individuals and their contributions to the state, as well as the formation of Greek communities in its large cities. Galveston at one time was a second port of entry for immigrants. That fact answers why so many Hellenes settled in Texas, especially Houston and Dallas. Not many Greeks settled in Austin because of the lack of employment and wanted to be near a coast. Today, with the introduction of the information and communication industries, the city of Austin has become a mecca for young Hellenes who are employed or operate in the cyberspace arena. I was interested in asking you a little bit about the history and growth of the local Hellenic community and its institutions, including the local chapter of the American Hellenic Educational Progressive Association, or AHEPA, which I know that you've been involved with. Well, I was the first, well, actually the second president of Chapter 312, but I served three terms as chapter president. I became a uh, district lieutenant governor, then governor for three years. Uh, Incidentally, the local HEPTA Chapter 312 is a good source for learning about the settling of Hellenes in Austin. PC connecting to AHEPA.org, then District 16, then Chapter 312's history, is a wealth of information and available regarding the presence and birth of an organization that has aided tremendously in the establishment of our community in Austin. Now, a little background on myself, my rearing in New England where orthodoxy and identity awareness is ingrained. Arriving in Austin in 1951 was certainly a cultural shock for my wife and me. Greek organizations and a place of worship were lacking, and not knowing a soul was extremely stressful. We began to question our presence, what we believe is a wasteland. We were going to stay a year, gain experience teaching at an institution of high learning, and return to five-foot drifts of snow and freezing weather. Well, we're still here deciding Austin is really not that bad. My involvement with the Hellenes began with the UT student body during my early years as a young instructor in the early 50s. I arrived in Austin in 1951. The University Hellene students, mostly from Cyprus, met at the UT Student Center, where other ethnic groups met. Among them was the Greek Club. About 20 young people from Greece were registered in a variety of degree programs. I became involved with their activities, social events, such as informal meetings that included dances, outings, and that sort of contact. I well remember that parties I held for them in my home at the time. UT also included five professors with Hellene backgrounds, but I would guess they were too interested in their teaching and research to engage in many students in social events. In the 60s, many celebrations and social events were held in San Antonio. In fact, the budding Austin Ahepa chapter and the well-organized San Antonio one held joint sponsorship of a great many events. Many Austin Hellenes also attended church services in San Antonio. The population in Austin now realized and ought to become a viable force in the city. We were very few in Austin at the time. Michael, I, I think we were about, I, I, can't, I can't actually pin down just how many Greek Americans they were or Hellenes American in Austin. 
I think I would venture maybe 100, maybe 150. I'm not sure. But anyway, working in my own field, I sort of kept it to myself and the university campus. But then I began to venture into a community and trying to do something to maybe organize a viable community. So I dedicated myself to the HEPA for quite some time until it became a, a sort of a albatross around my neck because I was spending too much time with the organization, not enough with my work, my creative work especially. Uh, I was beginning to uh, gain a national and international uh, figure, and uh, I had to stay with my work. Anyway, let's see what else I can add. In the 60s, a small group of Austin and Helene women formed a social organization. They called themselves the Greek Club. Members included my wife, Kay, Angie Jaffers, Trudy Stathis, and I'm sorry to say I can't remember some of the others. They danced at Austin events clothed in authentic Greek village costumes. They performed at the state capitol as well as manning Greek food stalls at many Austin ethnic festivals. Let's see what else I can speak about. Oh, we had we we began a, an annual Greek festival in uh, April, and uh, a thousand people attended the event. The one in 2010 attracted 5,000 for the three-day event. That awareness of a Hellenic presence certainly attests to our Hellenic identity in Austin. We're presently a community that, in spite of our limited numbers, have gained citywide attention. Well, Michael, you know, I received your invitation, and I found out we were getting a radio in Austin. And with that advent of the Austin Hellenic Radio, it's going to be a pleasure. We're going to rejoice in appreciating our Hellenic roots. I found it very interesting that you mentioned that going back to the 1950s, there was a Hellenic society on the campus of the University of Texas, and of course it still exists today. I was interested in asking you how the local Hellenic community has changed over the years, including the Hellenic student body at the University of Texas. Yeah, I can say that because of the young people that have arrived recently, when I say recently, possibly in the past 10 years, all young people, you know, are working in cyberspace, they added actually to our important in the, in the HEPA chapter 312, and I don't know how, you know, I'm not very involved now in the campus activities, so I can't, I can't speak to that very much. Well, anyway, let's see what else I can add to that. One of the, one of the most important things in Austin, I think, um, in developing a, a parenthesis, a community of Hellenes, was the establishment of the church. At that time, now I'm speaking about uh, maybe in the late 70s or late 60s, in order, in order for those the Greeks living here and becoming a viable force, we had to, we needed a place to worship. We told about, I think, 80 to 90 individuals who were interested, and Father Triander Filou, a priest from Houston, was selected to hold services on a temporary basis and was held in an Episcopalian house of worship following their own religious services. Uh, I, I might add that Father Triander Filou, is presently the president of Hellenic College. A committee made up of Hellenes was formed to select an architect, and construction began on a parcel of land in the Westlake Hills. The now Transfiguration Church with the adjoining recreation hall and school was built in stages, finances permitting, and presently numbers about, I would say, 300 members, and is proceeding with an astonishing growth rate because I believe that there are other members, because, or other individuals, I should say, without a Hellenic background that have joined our church. And the Transfiguration Orthodox Church here in Austin, I believe, recently celebrated their 25th anniversary last November. Really? It's been that long? Uh, yes, it was a 25th anniversary celebration uh, a few months ago. Well, back. you see, I'm not very active. One of the one of one of the great reasons is because my wife is now immobile, and uh, she's disabled. In fact, she's in the hospital right now, and short to um, go there and come back, you know, in a wheelchair and so forth. But uh, I do what I can for the uh, advancement of the church. Where did the local Hellenes go to worship prior to the uh, construction of the Greek Orthodox Church? 
Yeah, they went to an Episcopalian church, actually. Father uh, Trindeluf was the first one to hold, uh, uh, so that I think they were pseudo-services, actually, because it was not uh, um, an area that was uh, that you would realize as orthodoxy. And uh, until um, they decided to purchase that piece of land up in the Westlake Hills, not many people attended the, the services. But uh, actually, when they get started, um, they, they, they begin to progress in a, in a pretty good rate. I wanted to shift gears a little bit since not only have you been heavily involved in the local Hellenic community here in Austin for several decades, but you have also had a very distinguished career as well at the University of Texas as a professor, as an educator. You're now a professor emeritus at the University of Texas and have been since 1985. I wanted to begin by asking you, as an artist, what influenced your artistic ambitions, your own artistic style? and if your Greek heritage uh, had any influence on your work. Yes, I can say that, um, you know, <laughs> after 19 visits to Greece and a year of residence, that I feel strongly that I am first, I shouldn't be saying this on the radio, I, I consider myself first Greek and then any other relationship that I might have with the country. And I began really uh, with my artwork when I was a youngster. I grew up in Brighton, Massachusetts. That's a suburb of Boston. And uh, my first exhibition, would you believe it or not, was I was 12 years old. They held an exhibition of my work in the Brighton School Library. And then uh, I was the best art student in, in high school, and I received a scholarship, but I wasn't able to take advantage of it because I needed to get into the service. And, well, I, was, I stayed out until a year because my dad was suffering from cancer. But when he died, I joined the Air Corps. It wasn't the Air Force then and spent uh, two years in the South Pacific. And then when I returned, I got married in my junior year at the Massachusetts School of Art in Boston. And uh, it was sort of a uh, disappointment for my father-in-law because he owned a, a business that supplied seafood along the whole seacoast. And when he asked me when I was courting his daughter what, um, what I was going to major, and I told him, Art, I said you had the big one on us. He didn't expect an artist from the family because he didn't have any sons, I guess. And then when I graduated from MassArt, I did my graduate work at Columbia, and I was offered a, a Ph.D. if I would stay on, but I was married and I had to get a, a employment right away. So I let out the feelers for a position in many universities and, and decided on Texas. We were to stay there for just one year and then come back to New England. Did I tell you that, um, see, where did I have that in my notes about staying a year and gaining experience teaching at an institution of higher learning and return to five-foot trips of snow and freezing weather? <laughs> and we're still here and decide Austin's really not that bad. But anyway, we decided just to stay a year here in Austin. And the art department was actually located in old GI barracks where they trained soldiers for the World War II. In the summertime, it was exceptionally and exceedingly hot because we didn't have air conditioning. And in wintertime, the models had to be next to a heater because they had to take breaks every five or ten minutes to heat themselves. And then in because uh, the United University of Texas had other priorities with, you know, other uh, disciplines on the campus for buildings. But they finally got around to us, and I was the, uh, the, the second in command of looking over the blueprints and the building of a, of a new art department. And that took away a lot of my uh, time from my work at the time. And finally, after realizing the building and getting everything in order, I was able to concentrate on my studies. I started teaching ceramics and sculpture. Sculpture along with Charles Umloff, who has a, a museum here in Austin. Uh, he was my mentor, in fact, and I didn't get along with him at first because he was a sort of a tyrant, you know, and, and I was on the bottom of the ladder, and I had to be accustomed to being operating or all. <laughs> 
But anyway, I, I certainly uh, got over that sort of thing. And when I became a professor, I wondered at times, because we had a budget council at the time, and uh, we decided on who got uh, increments and raises. And I sort of uh, felt a little uneasy because they decided your career and where you were going next. And I wondered at the time when I received my professorship where whether those young people looked upon me at the same, same way I did when I was a student, or rather um, um, uh, an instructor. From ceramics and working, uh, the, the chairman of the department, uh, we decided to have a museum called the Huntington Gallery on the campus. And because uh, of my background in design, he asked me if I wouldn't be interested in a curatorship, a design curatorship. I said, well, I'll take it for a year. Well, I ended up with five years. One of the exhibitions that I designed entailed uh, uh, exhibiting Texas art at the New York World's Fair in the 60s. And then from there, while I was design curator, they, they hired another person for ceramics and, and had me teaching uh, a course called Art in the Marketplace. I titled that course. I started out with six students and ended up teaching it in the auditorium. And the course in, included teaching students how to cope with the outside world in terms of, of their work and their involvement in that society, how to get loans for the studio and so forth. And I taught that for about a year until I decided that I had to go back to my own teaching, my own work. So then I went into plastics for a change because I was teaching three-dimensional design, and that involved, the media involved uh, working with wood and plastics and glass and all kinds of media. It was an, an exciting for me because prior to uh, going into art school, I worked as a machinist in Boston, and I was familiar with uh, the, the workings of machinery as they, as they applied to artwork. Uh, it's called, right now, it's called constructivism. It's a, it's a form of art that originated in Russia, and now it's a program and an academic thing that part of every institution that teaches art I'm in who's who in American art, who's who in the world, and so forth, you know. <laughs> that comes along with teaching that long, I guess. But I still add to my uh, my website. I have a website and also have on uh, Facebook, and I have a blog. And so anybody interested, all I have to do is type in my name, Hatgill, and all these things come up. Is that enough, Michael? <laughs> uh, I think that actually only begins to scratch the surface of your artistic and your educational background and as you've been mentioning you've worked with a lot of different genres and styles of art i wanted to ask you what are some of the works which you are most proud of and where are some of your works displayed if i'm not mistaken some of your work can even be seen right here on the campus of the university of texas yeah if they type if they type in uh, my name hatkill and go and go to k capital k n o w uh, they, should, they depict them. I'm standing in front of one of the mosaics that I did for a building that first was a hotel uh, on Guadalupe. But uh, unfortunately, uh, they, they would allow, the owners only would not allow blacks uh, to stay there. And of course, we had visiting black professors who were seeking a, uh, a position here. So the university took it over. And it became the Austin, uh, rather the, um, the UT University of Texas Faculty Club in Guadalupe. And uh, last year, uh, they, they were going to tear the building down, but they decided to keep it and turn it into a communication center. It's now called the Walter Webb Communication Center. And uh, fortunately, they, they retained my big mosaic there. It's, it depicts the old main building on the campus, the first main building, because the people who commissioned me to do it asked me to do something. And uh, it's a 6 by 12 foot for the building. And they asked maybe I could do something showing the tower. I said, well, all you have 
one has to do is look out the window and see the tower. So I decided to do uh, depict the old main building in an abstract manner. It's quite, quite interesting. And anyone in Austin could enter the building and, and view the, the work. Then I have three works on the campus. Uh, one is my crown and glory in, in resins. It's six feet high with stainless steel. And it's called uh, exicolonis, which means in Greek six columns made out of resins. Then I have 50 ceramic reliefs that girdle the uh, business administration building, the McComb Business Administration Building. Let's see, beside that, I have a mosaic in downtown Austin on Congress and Brazos depicts the city of Austin. At that time, we had the old airport and some of the scenery there, but it's still, the mosaic is still there. Uh, I'm in a great many international and national collections. Uh, I've been in the Smithsonian Institute invitational exhibition uh, three times, and they, they selected people who they wanted um, exhibiting their ceramic work. Uh, and then I uh, have collections in many of the European countries, including Cyprus and Greece. Oh, I, did, I received three grants to visit museums and places of interest uh, for an artist in Europe, and that was when I was a curator for the uh, Huntington Gallery. I guess that would be the extent of some of my accomplishments. And even though you have been a professor emeritus since 1985, you have remained active in the academic and art world since then. What have been some of the things that you have been working on recently? Oh, yes. Um, now, when I retired, I didn't have a place because I was usually using the Austin University of Texas facilities to, to do some of my work. And now that I live in, a, in what they call a uh, condo, it really is not a condo, it's a separate building, I decided that I had to keep my art, art up. So I used half of my garage for my studio. And uh, I didn't know what medium to work in. And I'm briefing through uh, a great deal of art media. And I came across an ancient Greek media called encaustics. E-N-C-A-U-S-T-I-C, caustic, of course, means Greek, meaning to burn. And it involves the use of wax. Now, uh, in ancient Greece, they used wax for the bottom of ships to ward off wood, burn, burn, uh, wood boring, uh, what they call, uh, call these microbes that bore into the wood and rot it. And uh, in addition to that, a great many people don't know that a lot of the Greek sculpture that you see in museums actually was adorned with uh, jewelry and also was painted with encaustics. So I read on, uh, I got a hold of some of the ancient texts on encaustics written by Pliny the Elder, an ancient historian, but they really did not reveal all the uh, intricate qualities of the intricate complications of working with that medium. So uh, I did a lot of research. I bought wax, and it has to be not wax that you use in candles, but pure beeswax. And the only place I could get it was downtown Austin in a place that sold a lot of a variety of things those days, in the ancient days when the store was first started, you know, like saddles and harnesses and, and that sort of thing. And they had the wax. It was pure beeswax. And a box of it cost $21 for 12 small cakes. Well, I noticed on the box where the box came from, so I ordered it directly, and it was much cheaper at the time. So it, it involved uh, using wax with linseed oil and demar varnish, and the and the uh, the coloring comes from dry pigments. When I say dry pigments, you know, contemporary artists use pigments that are pressed out of tubes. Well, this you have to use the the ground pigments to grind it in a, in a pestle, like your chemists do, uh, mixed with a certain amount of linseed oil and demar varnish, and then you put it aside and you heat it with the wax. 
You have to be very careful because it's very flammable, so I keep a fire extinguisher handy all the time. And then uh, I, I can't paint on canvas because canvas would burn with the, with the heating. The ancient Greeks used to work with that medium, and most of the, the famous ones uh, are in Egypt, and they're called the El-Fayim portraits. They were small portraits that were put on mummies, and they used to move the wax around with fine almost like dental tools, very intricate, beautiful things. So what I was going to work on which is four by four panels and I couldn't use canvas so I, and I couldn't use wood because it was hot to heat wood because this the, the ancient Greeks heated the, the, the panels from below and they were wooden panels. So I opted on masonite and I had to uh, rib the masonite to keep it rigid as I heated it. And I don't heat it with charcoal as I did in the ancient days. I use an infrared lamp and I apply the, uh, the, the hot wax on the surface of a panel that's been painted three or four times or five times with gesso. Gesso is a white chalk that absorbs the paint and, and any material that's applied to it. And the panel has to be perfectly level. You have usually a level to level it because you see wax melts and it runs, so I didn't want that to run. So I found out that applying three or four coats of this material that I melt, one on top of the other, and then melt it with the, hot, with the infrared lamp, I use the infrared lamp, I get astonishing results according to how that the materials are applied. It, it, it's almost amazing that I can get a sky or an ocean thing in, in minutes by applying various colors of blue and white in certain patterns and then heating the substance, but using the dark colors first because the, the infrared lamp uh, attracts the dark colors first. They bubble through all this surface stuff, and, and it's astonishing what, what, what results you get. And, I, and I've been exhibiting these encaustic paintings um, for the past, well, since 1984. Uh, I've had exhibitions at the Baylor University and other places for these paintings, and, uh, and I've uh, included a great many of them in local and international collections. Oh, you asked about the... Now, you see, since I'm working in that manner, I cannot use uh, what they call hard-edge paintings. Hard-edge paintings include paintings that there's a differentiator between uh, a building and a sky, and, a, and a, in other words, a landscape. If you do, if you do a, say, a sky and then start melting, uh, what's next to it? You're going to run it together, so you can't do that. So most of my paintings uh, have to do with seascapes and uh, subject matter that's rather abstract in manner, but interesting because of its texture qualities. You have said that all artists, through their work, leave behind a legacy. What legacy would you like to leave behind through your artwork? Well, for one, I want them to realize I've got I've got full volumes my artwork. I keep a record of everything. As you know, you publish a parish in an institution of higher learning. So I've kept a record of every single letter that I've received, every painting that I've done. In other words, I've chronicled all this work in these volumes. And I can say that I prided myself on creativity. I've never copied something else or someone else's work. I've allowed it to be a sort of a serendipity, uh, that which comes from delving into something unknown. And I think anyone who has never experienced that uh, is as good as dead, because it's really an exciting thing to be able to arrive at something that no one else has. You know, they're highly individual, highly creative. I think that would be my legacy. And for students, for instance, uh, to follow my philosophy about artwork, that you, you do that as a person and an individual, and uh, you don't allow outside influences to, to take hold and, 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 and not becoming yours ex exclusively. Of course, being a Greek, uh, actually, in the background, I enjoyed being in that country. 
My language in Greek is not as good as it should be because I was raised in a family, uh, and actually they didn't speak English. But when they passed away at an early age, both my parents died when I was uh, 16 and 17, and I wasn't able to continue uh, with the communication after that. But it, uh, at that age, I was thrown into the world along with my brother, and uh, we fared together uh, fairly well. Uh, we both worked together until uh, we, we reached adulthood. Unfortunately, we don't have any children. I would have liked to have children, but my wife and I couldn't. Have. But um, I, I felt that all my students at the university in the 35 years that I taught were, were really my children, and I treated them as such. I, asked, I told them at the outset, now look, I said, all you students, if you follow my directions, not directions, but but my teaching, and, and show up on, at, at that time, at times, uh, on time, that you will not, you will always uh, pass the course. But if, if you feel that you don't belong here, uh, I don't want to teach. You know, I don't want to teach you. I, I want you to be able to share with me the excitement of being an artist. Incidentally, Michael, I was the only one in the College of Fine Arts thus far, I think, that have, uh, has received two Teacher and Excellence Awards from the student body. And he certainly did leave behind a, an excellent legacy here at the University of Texas, 35 years teaching at the university, and you have been a professor emeritus since 1985, so another 26 years since then, 50 years being part of the University of Texas community. Well, the community, yeah. To wrap up, I wanted to ask where our listeners can find out more information about you and your work on the Internet. Now, I just happen to have my business card in front of me, all right? All they have to do, and they don't have to get into involved in anything, but just type my name on H-A-T-G-I-L, and everything you wanted to know about art and myself will come up. And that includes, of course, a uh, personal website, which you mentioned, uh, oh, a blog. Yeah, my blog, my uh, website, my Facebook, everything will come up. I wanted to add one more thing, Michael. Sure. My name wasn't prop Paul Hatgill. You know, that's not Greek. My name initially was Apostolos Panayotis Hadzilakos. Now, that's quite a moniker to be teaching with you. Don't you agree? Sure. And I couldn't sign my name, Apostles Panagiotis Hachilakos. And besides, I grew up in the, in the city of Boston at the time when uh, there was uh, a discrimination against uh, people, foreigners, uh, you know, immigrants. So I felt if I was going to teach in a institution or um, public school in Boston, I had to change my name. And that was something that was very common among many Greek Americans at the time. Oh, yes. Amongst many immigrants from all kinds of uh, sex. Of course, not just Greek Americans. Many yeah. immigrants who Americanized their names. Uh, others, because of discrimination, others to to get ahead in the in the job market in America. But uh, certainly a very very common story. Oh yes, yeah, that's already pretty recognized today. Yeah, but you know something? I wish I could go back and call myself Apostle Spaniolis <laughs> And then I could, I could, um, and, and if I wasn't married, I probably had when I, when I had a PhD. You know what that means, Michael? Yes. In the academic field, especially. Well, it was a pleasure having you on our show today. We really appreciate the time that you took to take us through your uh, your history as an artist and as an educator, and also to guide us through the history of the Hellenic community here in Austin, because Austin may not have one of the larger Greek-American communities in the United States, uh, such as Astoria in New York or in Chicago or Boston or some other places, but certainly each community has a history of its own, and we're, we're very glad that you were able to share with us a little bit about this background. And I'd like to add, uh, Michael, with the advent of Austin Hellenic Radio in Austin, 
it's going to be a pleasure that we can rejoice and appreciate our Atlantic roots. And I also want to say thank you, KVRX and 91.7 FM. <laughs> well, thank you. We really appreciate your support, and we really thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Yes, and I want to encourage you all to um, donate for the uh, continuing of our Austin Radio. Thank you. We appreciate that as well. Thank you for joining us, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to have you join us again on an upcoming broadcast as well. Thank you, Michael. Okay, have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.